You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. We put a premium on knowledge. You can see this in so many ways in our lives and in our societies, not least in our approach to education. We want the best schools for our kids. And some of us are willing to pay a great deal and others are, are willing to put in time and energy to help out. And we want good test scores and we want good teachers and we want a good education for our kids. We want them to know what they need to know so they can get into college and get a good job. We put a premium on knowledge, knowing the right things. When we get out into society, into the marketplace, we want to work with people who know things, who are competent in their professions. You want your doctor, your physician, to know how the body works and how it can be healed. You want your mechanic to know how your car works so that it's drivable and safe. Probably want your pastor to know a thing or two about church leadership. We put a premium on knowledge, don't we? You can go to YouTube and dig up a do-it-yourself video on almost anything. Some of you may have looked up how to give yourself a haircut in the last few weeks. How to build whatever you want to build, how to create, whatever you want to create. There's knowledge everywhere. It's at our fingertips, and we put a premium on it. We may be tempted to translate that attitude, knowledge matters, what you know matters, get more knowledge. We may be tempted to treat the kingdom of God that we learn about from Jesus with that sort of what you know is the most important thing. That could be a temptation for us. That's how the rest of our lives work. What you know matters. Surely the kingdom of God works that way too. Mark, however, wants us to wrestle with a different reality. He wants us to wrestle with the fact that the kingdom doesn't work primarily based on what you know. Instead, Mark wants us to embrace the reality that life in the kingdom is less about knowing what and more about knowing who. It's not what, it's who. And the who is Jesus. Now this begins to show up immediately in Mark chapter 1, verse 16. Jesus has just launched His ministry Just before this, in verse 15, we're told that He has gone about Galilee proclaiming the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is drawing near, it's closer, repent and believe the good news, the gospel, the good news about the kingdom. And then, Mark shifts the scene and Jesus is passing by the Sea of Galilee. You may have noticed Mark is very much down to business. You get one scene, you get another scene, immediately something else happens. He doesn't waste words, he doesn't spend a lot of time filling in the narrative context. You just, you get 
the gist of it, you get the boiled down version. So Jesus starts proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now he's passing by the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Simon, also known as Peter, elsewhere in the New Testament. He saw Simon, verse 16, he saw Simon's brother Andrew, and they are casting a net into the sea because they're fishermen. That's their vocation. That's their job. And Jesus says to them, follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. Immediately we're told, they abandon their nets and follow Jesus. He goes a little further. He sees James, son of Zebedee, his brother John. They're in a boat mending their nets. They're also fishermen. Immediately he called them. And they abandoned their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed Jesus. Now, when we read this passage, we are accustomed to thinking of Jesus as a teacher, as a rabbi. If you look at some of the scholarship, there's a strong emphasis on you know, Jesus, like the typical Jewish rabbi in the first century, has disciples. A disciple is a learner or a student. This is a, an educational setting. The thing is, and this is what makes Jesus unique, yes, he does have some things in common with a typical first century teacher. He does have learners, he does have disciples, he has students, and he's teaching them a lot of important things. But the thing that makes Jesus different, and this is what we begin to see immediately, is the focus not on knowing what you know, but on who you are in relationship with. The thing to notice is that Jesus, unlike other rabbis, doesn't wait for people to choose him. He goes and chooses his own followers. See, in the ancient world, first century Jewish world, rabbis didn't go around looking for students. The students came to them. And let's say you want to learn about Torah, you want to learn about the law, you kind of interview some rabbis. Go to one and you say, hey, you know, Talk to me about your method. Talk to me about your process. I'm going to do a little interview. I want somebody with a good reputation who really knows what to teach. And it was perfectly fine if you select one rabbi and things aren't going quite the way you wanted to. Maybe he doesn't know the material quite as well as you would have expected him to. You can pick somebody else and that's perfectly fine because the point is they're teaching you God's law. They're teaching you Torah. And if their competency isn't maybe what you expected it to be, you can go find another person. And so someone who's looking to be taught, someone who's looking to be trained, will look for a rabbi. Rabbis don't go around looking for disciples in the first century. Disciples, potential disciples, go around looking for rabbis. Jesus presents us a very different picture, doesn't he? He's not behaving like a standard rabbi. He's not sort of letting his reputation about knowing what to teach and how to teach draw people to him. He takes the initiative, he steps out, he goes walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he calls followers. Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And so if we're thinking, you know, what is this, how does this fit into the big story? If he's not behaving like a rabbi... Who is he behaving like? And then if we begin to think about how 
God behaves all through the Old Testament, how God takes the initiative to call people to himself, how God takes the initiative to give a vocation, calling people to minister as his representatives, Jesus looks more like that than he does the typical first century rabbi, doesn't he? When he takes initiative. Consider the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, later to be known as Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and, I, and your father's house. Right? I mean, that sounds a lot like Jesus calling James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Leave your father behind and follow me. God says to Abram, leave your country, leave your kindred, leave your father's house. Go to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. That sounds a lot like I will make you, fishers of men, God says to Abram, I will make you into something new, a great nation. And I'll bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4, so Abram went, as the Lord had told him. God calls and people respond. That's exactly what happens with Jesus and Simon and Andrew. And James and John. Consider the calling of Moses. Let's just be sure that this isn't a one-off kind of thing. God has this pattern of behavior of calling people and giving them a vocation. God calls Moses. He appears at the burning bush. Moses is kind of off aside and he sees a bush burning and it's burning but it's not consumed and so he goes to explore and he hears this voice and the voice says come no closer take off your shoes the place you're standing is holy ground I am the God of your father the God of Abraham Isaac the God of Jacob Moses hides his face because he's afraid to look at God the Lord declares I've heard the cry of my people as slaves in Egypt I've heard their misery and then in verse 10 He says to Moses, so come and I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Again, God takes the initiative to call a person into his service, into a vocation of representing him. He doesn't wait for Moses to take the initiative. Moses would have never taken the initiative. Moses was trying to stay as far away from Egypt as he could because he was a fugitive running from the law. He had killed a guy, remember? And now he's trying to stay away, and God says, no, no, I've got a vocation for you, and it's in Egypt, and I want you to go. So Moses, despite his objections, ends up going back. Let's look at one more, because I want you to see the pattern again. God calls Abraham, he calls Moses, he also calls the prophets. If you take a look at Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4, you get another similar kind of vignette. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah responds, ah, Lord God, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a boy. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a boy, for you shall go to all whom I send you. And you shall speak whatever I command you. Don't be afraid. I am with you to deliver you. So if we're trying to understand who Jesus is, 
Mark portrays him not as a great teacher who's got lots of important things to teach you about Torah and the law. Yes, he is a great teacher. Yes, we'll find out that he has a lot of important things to teach you. But he's not your typical rabbi who's got a long list of you know, well-trained students and a great reputation of knowing a lot of, a lot of knowledge. And he's the guy you want to go to if you want to learn That's not how Jesus is presented in the Gospel of Mark. Instead, Mark presents Jesus as someone who does the sorts of things that God does. He calls people. He appears, like out of nowhere, right? There's no narrative. The disciples don't have time to check him out. They don't get a chance to look at his resume. He just shows up. He says, follow me. I have a job for you. Let's go. His authority, the authority that is inherent in His person as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the King, that is what compels them to follow Him. And We begin to see life in the kingdom is less about knowing what and more about knowing who. They have to be in relationship with Jesus The who is on the forefront here. They have to be in relationship with Jesus before they can learn anything. They're not going to get a good education and then go use their smarts to find Jesus. They need the person before they get the knowledge. Because the knowledge will never get them to the person. It only works the other way around. It's important to notice as well who Jesus calls doesn't isn't it it's going to be a theme that runs through the gospel of mark all the right people get frustrated at jesus and plot against him precisely because he's hanging out with ordinary people the wrong kind of people day workers fishermen later on sinners and tax collectors the religious leaders, the elites, the well-connected, the power players, the wealthy, the government officials are going to go after Jesus with everything they've got because Jesus is building His kingdom not based on people who have all the right credentials, not based on people who know a lot of stuff, not based on people who have a great education, but simply based on the reality of His call. Jesus picks ordinary people to build his unexpected kingdom. That's one reason it's unexpected. That's one reason it looks upside down. His value system is radically different from what anybody expected. He doesn't go for the powerful or the well-connected or the well-educated. He goes for fishermen mending nets by the sea in daddy's boat. Which is encouraging to me. And I hope it's encouraging to you. Because it means that Jesus' choice of us, that His call to me and to you, follow me, doesn't depend on anything inherent in us. No gifts, no skills, no abilities, no knowledge, no education, no amount of resources. He needs nothing from us. He only desires That we surrender to Him. He doesn't pick us because we can offer Him anything. 
He picks us because he loves us. So he chooses ordinary people, people like us, to go and be his disciples, his learners, and ultimately his representatives in the world. Now, the focus on the person of Jesus, right? Not on what he knows or what he can offer, just who he is. That's what Mark is presenting us, a person. Gets amplified in the next scene. Remember, Mark likes to change scenes quickly. So he calls these guys and they follow him. And they go to Capernaum. And they go in a synagogue on the Sabbath. And as Jesus is teaching, authoritatively, not like everybody else, an unclean spirit who's in possessing somebody who's there shouts out at him. Verse 24, this unclean spirit cries out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God, the Messiah. So you get this contrast between the disciples who there's nothing in the narrative that tells us they know anything about Jesus. They don't know who he is. Not yet. It will be revealed to them later. In Mark chapter 8 and beyond. But at this point, they don't know that he's the Messiah. They don't know that he's the Son of God. They don't know about the cross. They don't know. They don't know who he is, all they know is they are trusting this guy who shows up and speaks to them in a compelling way. They don't know what he knows yet. They're learning that. They're beginning to learn it. But their focus is just follow him. The demons, however, know more than the disciples, don't they? The demons know who Jesus is. The thing that comes up as Mark puts all of this emphasis on knowing who Jesus is and knowing him deeply, the thing that we begin to, to discover is that there's a difference between knowing who Jesus is and trusting the person of Jesus. There's a difference between just kind of believing that Jesus is the Son of God and leaving everything behind to follow him. Mark wants us to understand just mere belief, if you know, head knowledge, something like that, is not enough. Trust, surrender, confidence, that's what it takes to be a follower of Jesus. That's what he's looking for. That kind of confidence. You may know the story of a man named Charles Blondin. If you don't, he's the guy who walked across Niagara Falls on a tightrope in 1860. Not once, but four times he did this. One of the times he pushed a wheelbarrow across. Another time he gave some guy a piggyback ride. The fifth time comes along when he's thinking about doing it, or one of the times comes along, and he goes to some guy who's kind of in the crowd watching. You can imagine the crowd that showed up for this. And Blondin says to some guy, hey, you want me to carry you across on my back? Come on, jump on, piggyback rides, free of charge, let's go. 
And the guy responds by saying, I'll pass, no thanks, I decline. And Blondin says, don't you believe I can do it? And the fellow responds, I believe you can do it, I just don't trust you. <laughs> Mark wants us to understand there's a difference in believing Jesus is the Son of God and trusting Him as the Son of God. There's a difference between watching Jesus do His thing and leaving everything behind to go with Him and learn from Him as He does His thing. The focus is on who Jesus is. The focus is on His trustworthiness. The focus is on the way He embodies the character and the life and the being of God to call in compelling ways. The demons know who He is, but their knowledge doesn't rise to the kind of knowledge of the person. They know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. Demons believe, but disciples trust. Demons believe, but disciples surrender to Jesus. The whole thing revolves around this deep knowledge of not on what you know, it's about who you belong to, who you trust, who you have confidence in. As the narrative moves on, the portrait of Jesus gets filled in, doesn't it? We find Jesus to be one who is a teacher unlike other teachers because he teaches with authority. So here's where the content of his teaching begins to come along. The focus is on who he is. And only when you know who he is, does what he knows become a benefit to you. You see how that works. With Jesus, you need to know him. You need to trust him. You need to be in a person-to-person -person relationship with him before his knowledge becomes a benefit to you. The demons know who he is, but his knowledge will not benefit them. In fact, he sets himself against them, casts them out of whoever it is they are within. So Jesus' teaching becomes very prominent in the Gospel of Mark. And the content of that teaching is the kingdom of God, the gospel, the good news that God is becoming king is, is happening right in front of you. He makes the point in verse 38... I came to proclaim the message of the kingdom. In verse 27, people are amazed because he teaches as one who has authority. And the teaching, this is key, pay attention here. A lot of times we focus in on the fact that Jesus is casting out demons. Well, that's, who is this guy's casting out demons? But notice that miracle, that exorcism, the healing that Peter's mother-in-law gets in a few minutes, the demon that gets cast out of the guy, the unclean spirit, those, that power is evidence of his authoritative teaching. Like We know this guy's declaration of the kingdom is legit because the demons have to do what he says. He embodies the authority of God in new ways. He calls, he commands unclean spirits, he heals the sick. 
So Mark is again filling in the picture for us very quickly, but very quickly we get a full picture of Jesus. He's the Son of God. He is the King in the kingdom that is coming. He embodies God when He calls disciples, and now He embodies the power of God when He commands the demonic and heals the sick. That's what happens in Peter's house when his mother is made well. Now there's an inevitable question that arises for us when we are faced with the person of Jesus. Not just what he knows, but who he is. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a good example. He is those things. More importantly, he is the Son of God, the King, the Messiah, who requires our faithful obedience. And that's where the question comes in. How do we respond to Him? When His person, His character comes into focus, we cannot avoid the question, how do I respond to Jesus? And Mark fills that portrait in for us as well. We respond to the who, to Jesus, to His person, to His call, to His character. We respond to Him by becoming ready to leave everything behind. You probably knew that was coming, didn't you? That's what they do. That's what Simon and Andrew and James and John do. Twice we are told... Immediately they left their nets and followed Jesus. Verse 18 about Simon and Andrew. And then in 20, he calls James and John. Immediately they left their father Zebedee in the boat. A stronger translation, maybe my preference would be, remember this is written in Greek originally, the same word gets repeated in both of those verses. They abandoned their nets to follow Jesus. They abandoned their father to follow Jesus. Think about what they're walking away from. Well, all those fish that we sell in the marketplace is how we put food on the table. Can Jesus offer me that kind of security? Well, I stand to inherit the family business. Zebedee's got the boat and the hired men. (laughs) And one day that'll belong to us. Do I trust Jesus enough to walk away? From the family business and the security that provides. Jesus calls his followers to be prepared to leave everything behind. Now, what doesn't happen, right? Because Peter still goes home. I mean, they're hanging out in Peter's house. It's not like he just sold his house or anything. Maybe they crashed there from time to time and he made his resources available to Jesus for the ministry. The thing to see is that there is this readiness. These guys are willing to abandon everything for the sake of Jesus and the sake of the gospel and the sake of his kingdom. They're ready to walk away from it. They are willing to find their security in Jesus and in his calling. 
They are willing to find their fullness in Jesus and in His calling. Their identity will not come from their vocation. It will not come from their family name. Their identity will come from Jesus and only Jesus. Their loyalty to the kingdom is a higher loyalty than any other loyalty. And real faith, real trust in Jesus, in who He is, means being ready to walk away from all of it if He calls. It's very easy, friends. <laughs> it's very easy to say the sinner's prayer. It's also easy to say the sinner's prayer and then go back to life and not have things change very much. And it's very easy after saying the sinner's prayer and going back to life and not having things change very much, some things perhaps, but not a lot, to getting in, becoming accustomed to things just sort of being normal. And then it's hard when Jesus actually calls <laughs> to abandon whatever it is He's calling us to abandon. Part of following Jesus, He may not call us to abandon everything today. But following Him means a readiness to do it at any moment. Following Jesus means a readiness. It's not just pray this prayer and live life like you normally do with maybe a little Bible study and some Sunday school thrown in. Faith in Jesus is this radical reorientation of life so that we are always ready to go where He calls, when He calls, at the drop of a hat. And the question for us when we read Mark's Gospel, are we ready for that? Are we ready for that? And do we trust Him? Do we trust the One who calls us to follow? Do we trust the one whose arms were stretched and spiked to a beam of wood? Do we trust the one whose flesh was torn and whose blood was spilled so that we can have life? Do we trust him? Are we ready to join his mission? Remember what he says? Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I will make you the people who gather the nations into the kingdom of God. Like following Jesus means readiness for mission. Are we ready for that? Are we ready? I mean, how, how much of our life is oriented around, I am ready today on Thursday morning to be on mission for Jesus wherever He takes me. Fishers of people right here. 
looking for opportunities to facilitate new relationships between my neighbors, my co-workers, my colleagues, students, fellow classmates, and Jesus. Like, that's what He calls them to. That's what He equips them for. The person trusting Him means consistent readiness for mission. There's a lot more to it than that first time we prayed that first prayer. That's important. Step one, absolutely. But step one is step one because step two follows. And step two is step two because step three comes after that. And step after step after step on the path, Jesus doesn't say, just believe in me and stay where you are. He says, follow me. And following him means a readiness to abandon everything but Jesus. Adniram Judson married Anne Hasseltine on February 5th, 1812. Two weeks later, they sailed off in a boat as missionaries to a country that was then called Burma and is now the Republic of Myanmar. It's bordered by Bangladesh and India in Southeast Asia. At that time, getting on a boat to be a missionary on the other side of the world meant you never saw your family again. It wasn't a go serve for three years and come back for a six-month furlough. As great a sacrifice as that is, not belittling that sacrifice. In the 19th century, if you got on a boat to go to Southeast Asia to be a missionary, that was the last time you would see your loved ones. So Adniram asked Anne to be his wife, and she said, you need to go talk to my daddy. And so Adniram wrote to Anne's father, and I want to read to you the letter that he wrote to the father of the woman he wanted to marry. This is what it says. Listen carefully. Judson wrote, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring. To see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of Him who left His heavenly home and died for her and for you for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion, and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory? 
with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. can imagine the signature sincerely. Adoniram. Anne's father gave his consent. Life in the kingdom is not about what you know and what you got. It is about unconditioned loyalty to the person of Jesus, the King of the kingdom, the Lord of heaven and earth, and the one who sacrificed his life so that the lost might be saved, so that you might be saved, so that I might be saved, and who gave himself and calls us now to unconditioned loyalty so that we can be His representatives to, the na- to our neighbors and the nations. Following Jesus is not a, hey, let's do this one time and then get back to normal. It's not a, hey, let's go to church from time to time and then get back to normal. And if there's anything that this weird season of coronavirus pandemic is teaching us, let it teach us not to take the kingdom of God for granted. As if we'll just have it anytime we want it. As if we can just stroll over to the church anytime we want to go. And the doors will be unlocked, and the band will be on the stage, and the piano will be tuned up, and the preacher will have a sermon ready. Let's not take that for granted. It won't always be there whenever we want it. Do not take Jesus for granted. Give yourself to Him instead. That's going to look different. The way that fleshes out for all of us, the particulars of that for you, for me, for the people sitting next to you, for your neighbors, for others watching the live stream, that's going to work out differently for us. There's somebody, you may be watching this stream and tomorrow Jesus may say, sell everything you got and move to Myanmar and plant a church when the travel restrictions are over. He may call your kid to missionary service and you may have to read a letter like this one day and you'll have to decide, am I going to encourage my kids to be given to Jesus completely and with nothing held back? Or am I going to, you know, imagine what Ann's father could have said. He could have said, no way I'm going to let my daughter go to the other side of the world to die with you. Come on. Find somebody with a good job here in the States. <laughs> Marry that person who goes to some member of a good church. Like, how are we going to teach our kids to love Jesus? Unless they see unconditioned loyalty to Him in us. Nothing held back. That's what life in the kingdom looks like.
You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hall United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.